some changes them. See how it all ends there in 4 verse 31. Uh, the people, that is the family elders, they bowed down and worshipped God, which is a far cry from where we were last time in Exodus. Things were, were just about on the up last time, but it's looking pretty ropey. If you remember, the story was it was a horrible period for the people of Israel. They were trapped in Egypt, they were under a pharaoh, and it was getting worse and worse and worse. He was working them harder and harder and harder. And they were being oppressed. And they were crying out to God, but not in worship. They were crying out in pain and in suffering. And so end of chapter 2, do you remember, during that long period, the king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help, because of their slavery, went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. It wasn't all bad though. Remember God was there and he was quietly at work. He was using resourceful people, people like Moses' mum, like Moses' sisters, like the midwives. Quietly he was working, protecting Moses protecting his rescuer. And yet in chapters 3 and 4, something changes. The people, their outlook is transformed. But what is it? Well, I take it it's this. It's that God reveals himself to his people. That's the game changer. That's why everything's different. He reveals himself firstly to Moses, and then through Moses and Aaron to the elders and the people. And everything changes. God reveals himself. As far as I understand it, that is something that goes right through the Bible. You see, we can't work God out for ourselves with our fallen minds, with our misunderstanding, with that bent we have, Genesis 3, away from God. We need the Lord to reveal himself to us. We can't work him out for ourselves. And so God in the desert reveals himself to Moses. And that changes everything. Do you remember how he had found himself in the desert in the first place? He had had somewhat jumped the gun. We had this little glimpse of an episode with Moses, and yet we saw something of of who he was going to be and what the Lord was going to do, but it was at the wrong time. He sees this Egyptian mistreating a fellow Israelite, and he goes and he, he sees and he strikes and he saves. And yet it was the wrong time. But they're very important words because it's what the Lord will do through Moses for his people. He will see and he will strike and he will save his people. But it was too early for Moses. It was a false start. He didn't really know the God whom he was representing yet. There's a great little account in the, um, the diary of George Whitfield, the great church minister from the 18th century. He said at Oxford. And he said this of his call to ministry. Very wise words, I think. He said, my friends wanted me to knock my head against the pulpit too young. God knows how deep a concern entering into the ministry and preaching was to me. I prayed a thousand times till the sweaters dropped from my face like rain that the God of his infinite mercy would not let me enter the church till he called me and thrust me forth into his work. By the end of chapter 4, Moses knows God. He knows his God. And he's being thrust forth into his work. It's taken time. It's taken lots of time. 
In Acts 7, we see it's taken 40 years. 40 years. We can't even wait for an internet connection or queuing behind people in a coffee shop. And yet the Lord has it in his hand, in his timings. He sees the whole picture. It strikes me before we kind of dive into these chapters that there are They're very contemporary and very relevant for us for lots of reasons. Here are just two that jump out. The first one is, if you like, for our culture to listen in. Because people in our culture, our society around us, they love to say, well, do you know, I like to think of God like this. Or to me, God is a dot, dot, dot. I'm just not sure that really works. Imagine I get home from work and I'm feeling very gushy. And I say to my wife, Zoe, I say, I love you, sweetheart, you're brilliant. You're so amazing, thank you. I love your your brown eyes, I love your brown hair. And that's fine, until you know that she's not got brown eyes or brown hair. God has revealed himself to us, the true God. We can't make up what he's like. We can't manufacture him as we would like him to be. He's, He's shown us who he is. And just as me getting Zoe wrong will have severe repercussions, so us getting God wrong, the God who's revealed himself, the God we can know, so that has severe repercussions. So our culture needs to hear this kind of stuff, because we can know what God is like. And yet I think we need to hear it too, because we need to know the kind of God we're with as we face the uncertainties of the future. Not just... Not just knowing about him, but actually knowing him. So it might be that you look at your calendar and you think, I don't know what's going to happen in the next couple of months, or the next five years. But that's okay. That's okay because we know our God. It might be that things don't pan out as you would expect them, as you would particularly like them. You're not quite sure what comes coming around the corner. That's okay. Because you know God. He's revealed himself and you know what he's like. Or it might be in the short term, there's just something keeping you awake at night. It's not just the heat, but something worrying you and you're struggling. Do you know it's okay? Because you know God. The true God who's revealed himself to you through his word. So, it's worth listening to. I want to split up our passage into two sections. And I want to see, firstly, who our God is. We're going to look at who he is and then what our response should be. We're going to see who he is. We'll see he is, I apologise for the P's, personal, passionate and powerful. Personal, passionate and powerful. That is, he's personal. He's the kind of God you can know. He's the kind of God which is a contrast to much of sort of postmodern theology or religion. He's someone you can actually relate to. C.S. Lewis said this in his book, Miracles. He said, an impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, the king, our husbands. That is quite a different matter. Our God is personal. And how do we see that? We see that, firstly, as he speaks to Moses from this um, this unburning, burning bush. We see it there in verses 6 and 7. We see he is the God with a people. He is personal because he has a people. Verse 6, then he said, 
I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my, my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they were the ancestors, the fathers of Israel. And he is their God. The God who makes covenants. The God who makes promises. The God who has a people. Who has a history with a people. And he sees his people as suffering. He's a personal God too because he gives them his name. Verse 13. Moses says to God, well suppose I go to the Israelites and they say, and say to them, the God of your father sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? And what shall I tell them? God said to, to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. So Lord here is a name. It's not a title. And names mean something. We get that. We come from Oxford. or We live in Oxford. I seem to remember from primary school that it was something to do with the ford where oxen would cross the Thames. Oxford. Names mean something. You see names as well in previous chapters. If you just kind of glance back at some of the footnotes... You see, Moses' name sounds like drawn out because he was drawn out of the water. You see, his son, Gershom, sounds like the Hebrew word for foreigner. Names mean something. But what does this name mean? What does I am actually mean? There's been an awful lot of ink spilt over many, many years as to quite what's going on here. I think it's a deliberately multifaceted name. It's meant to stretch our understanding, to stretch our minds. It teaches us different things about who God is. Here are just some thoughts. I think I am has got the sense of I exist. I am the God who exists. I am self-sufficient. I am real, brackets, as opposed to those other gods that we'll learn about next week that aren't, close brackets. I wonder if his self-sufficiency is even there. It's hinted at in this burning bush, this self-maintaining flame, that there is, there is life within itself. It doesn't burn up. It keeps going. It's represented by this, fly, this fire. I am as well as got the sense of being, I am present. I'm with you. I am who I am. I am who I reveal myself to be. And you see it as well in the footnote, it's there. The phrase can also mean, or perhaps more clearly means, I will be what I will be. Do you want to know what God's like? Or stay tuned. Keep watching. Keep looking. Keep listening. Watch as I rescue you. Watch as I work in history and achieve my purposes. You can trust me, I'm unchanging. That's the kind of God we have. And this I am in our Bibles is shown by the capitals L-O-R-D. Whenever you see that, read Lord, but think covenant, powerful, loving, personal God who looks after his people, who smashes his enemies. 
And when years later a man comes onto the scene and says, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am. Then we see why some people are terrified and others want to kill him for blasphemy. Years later, here is the Lord walking among his people, taking on flesh. I am Jesus. So he's a God who's personal. I think that's really important from the passage. And yet it's key that we see as well, we're not equals. We're not equals. We don't approach him on our terms. Moses is to remove his sandals, for the ground is holy, because God is holy. We approach God on his terms. And the way that he tells us, that's what the second half of Exodus is all about. As you make a tabernacle, as you're shown how to relate to this kind of holy God. He may be personal, but he's the kind of God who reveals himself to us, and yet we have to respond in the right way. There's a wrong familiarity that we can have. Someone put it that it's it's almighty, not all matey. I'm reminded of that lovely little episode I'm in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, at the beaver's house. Mrs. Beaver says, uh, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than me or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So God is personal. Secondly, he's passionate. That is, he's the kind of God who, who sees and who responds to his people's needs. The kind of God who's not unmoved by his people's suffering. Verse 8. So I've come down to rescue them from the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Verse 8, I have come down to rescue them. He's a God who gets his hands dirty. You may know where it's all going. But we shouldn't be surprised when we read later of how God comes down in Jesus. We'll actually look at it tonight in our evening service if you're around for that. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made us dwelling among us. Or from Hebrews, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses. We have a God who, who comes, a God who is not distant, he's not far off, he is with us, he comes down to us, he rescues, he's not forgotten. And when we Like Moses say, but me, Lord, you you want to use me? How can I do that? He says, verse 12, I will be with you. Which is our third P, he's powerful. Because he uses people like Moses and people like you and people like me. He's not unmoved by his people's suffering, but he's powerful to do something about it. He's powerful to change their situations. Often he uses other individuals. He uses flaky failures like us. He's powerful. He is the rescuer. It's tricky to see it in such a long text, but Moses is such a whiner and he is such a wriggler as he tries to get out of it. 
So the plan is for him to go to the elders of Israel with a message from the Lord, and then they were to go to Pharaoh with a message from the Lord together. And they're almost Jonah-like throughout the encounter. He's giving his excuses. I can't do this. I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. Five times he lines up reasons why God shouldn't use him. So firstly, 3 verse 11. uh, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? God says, I will be with you. 3 verse 13. Suppose I go and they say, who sent you? Well, God says, here's my name. 4 verse 1. What if they don't believe me or listen to me? God says, right, I'll give you some evidence. Here are three signs. There's a staff that turns into a snake, 4 verse 2 to 5. 4 verse 6 to 7, there's a hand that becomes leprous and unleprous. 4 verse 8 to 9, water on the floor, it'll become like blood. Fourthly, 4 verse 10, I'm not a good public speaker. He says, take Aaron. And 4 verse 13, Lord, just send someone else. And God says, just go already. He's, he's powerful. He uses people who aren't perfect. People like us. And he doesn't just tell us to go and get on with it as well. He is with us in it. He's the kind of God who says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He equips and he enables and he empowers people like us. It's amazing. Time and time and time and time again in the Bible you see that happening. Weak people are transformed as God empowers them. I think that's just the kind of stuff we need to hear as we think about big, bold gospel plans as we think about buildings and planting, or as we we relaunch evening services. Frankly, it's just a bit scary, and we don't feel up to it. Or it's just the kind of stuff we need to hear as individuals, as day by day by day, we try and be witnesses for him in the workplace, or on our streets, or in our families, or as we commute to work, or in the clubs that we're a part of, whatever it might be. And frankly, it's a bit scary. <coughs> and we just don't really feel up to it. But look at the kind of God we have, a God who is personal. He is knowable and he is reliable and he is there. He is passionate. The kind of God who loves to rescue. He loves people. And a God who goes with us, a God who is powerful. He doesn't need us to be brilliant and amazing at what we do. Too often we're just like Moses and we say, Lord, here's my reasons why I can't do it. And he says, just trust me. Trust me, I'm enough. Go and get on with it. So that's a very brief snapshot of the God of the Exodus. We'll see much more in weeks to come. I want us to briefly think, though, what our response ought to be to that kind of God from the passage. I think we'll see two things, or at least two things. Our two for this morning are obedience and worship. Right through chapters three and four, Moses is to do as he's told. He is a personal and he is a passionate God, but he's the boss. He calls the shots. 
Obedience is, is not an option. He tells Moses to go, and Moses tries to wriggle and squirm out of it. And yet we shouldn't ever want to get to 4 verse 14. The Lord's anger burned against Moses. Of course he isn't safe, said Mrs. Beaver, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And nowhere is this idea of obedience, I think, clearer than in 4 verse 24 to 26. Now, I have to let you in on a secret. For the preacher, these are the little accounts that you would like to leave behind. These are the ones, especially where you're trying to cover loads of material. Well, I'll just kind of sweep that under the carpet and hope nobody asks me about it over coffee. Let's have a look, though. 4 verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. It is a strange little encounter, and there will be questions that we're left with. Uh, Chat over coffee. But it looks like what's going on is this, I think. Moses had not circumcised his boy. He may have been living in Midian. He may in lots of ways have been assimilated into Midianite culture. He's taken a wife, he's made a home, he's had children, he's got jobs. But he still had a duty to circumcise his son as a part of being being a part of God's family. A family that trusted God's promises. I take it especially now, now he's met the God of the covenant. He's met the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And his son does not have the sign of the covenant. I reckon that would be pretty high on your to-do list, having met God. Moses has not obeyed. And so Moses, the rescuer, do you know, he needs to be rescued. He actually requires the obedience of another to protect him and to save him from the just anger of God. I think it points us forward. It points us forward to another place in Exodus where where blood is important, to the Passover in chapter 12. We'll see it in two weeks the blood of the Passover lambs on the doorpost to protect the family inside from the anger of God. And it points ahead again to the true Passover lamb, the one who will die for the sins of his people. The true Passover lamb, Jesus, who doesn't need rescuing because he's sinless. His blood is averting the the holy God's right anger against our sin. It might be you're here today and you're just looking in on Christian things, you're kind of glancing in through the window, you wouldn't call yourselves a Christian. You know, I'd love to encourage you today to trust that rescuer for yourself. To trust Jesus. To trust the obedient death and resurrection of Jesus in your place for yourself. His blood averts God's holy anger against you unto himself. Our God is personal and he is passionate and he is powerful, but he demands absolute obedience. He's utterly loving. He's utterly holy. He can't simply overlook your sin and sweep it under the carpet or else he wouldn't be holy. I say, trust Jesus. Trust the rescuer that you need. So, first response, obedience. Second response, worship. 
And it's where we began, with the people in slavery we worship. So what changes in chapters 3 and 4? God reveals himself. That's the game changer. Everything is different. And their response? Well, if you know Exodus, you'll know that they scoffed at Moses and he ran off into the desert. He scarpered. Now he comes back as God's rescuer. And 4 verse 29, Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the, people, sorry, the Lord had said to Moses and he also performed the signs before the people and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and they worshipped. They get it and they trust the God who rescues. I think it's likely that prior to this they had no understanding of who God was, no real knowledge of his name or his character, no grasp that they were his people and so concerned about them. And so it's remarkable, at the end of chapter 4, basically they humbly trust God and they trust his rescuer. They trust this God for salvation. And we're going to do that now. We're going to worship God with them. We'll pray first. But then we're going to worship the Lord for who he is and the rescue that he sends. With them, humbly, we will worship.